Good morning, everybody. Just when you think you can put the sweaters away for the winter months, Indiana does what Indiana does in the month of May. I always enjoy sitting with young couples as they plan their weddings this time of year, and they say to me, and with great excitement and enthusiasm in their voices, we're going to have an outdoor wedding in May. And my typical response is, that's really not a good idea, like at all. So just picture all the outdoor weddings yesterday, how that would have gone, brides-to-be. So I always encourage them, have a good indoor alternative, right? Those of you who've been around Indiana know. Um, But I'm excited about this new series we're starting today, Life of Joseph, Old Testament character. You can read about Joseph's life, Genesis 37 to Genesis 50. So if you want to immerse yourself in those chapters for the weeks ahead, that would be fine, and uh, then we'll just kind of break it down and dig below the surface of Joseph's life and harvest out some principles for our lives today. And we're going to start with Joseph in his upbringing, and I've entitled today, Raised in Brokenness. And the main theme of today, as we get into Joseph's journey, is that the brokenness of your past does not derail God's plans for your future. And I believe God brought someone here today to simply hear that one statement, that the brokenness of your past will not derail God's plans for your future. And there's no conditions attached to that. Maybe you were raised in a home where your parents divorced at a young age. Maybe your parents divorced when you were a little bit older. Maybe your parents divorced when you were younger and you were older. Maybe you were raised in an environment where you heard consistently that you were loved and that you were celebrated. Maybe you were raised in an environment where you never heard that you were loved and where you were rarely or ever celebrated. Maybe you were affirmed to the person that God made you to be and celebrated for you to simply be you. Or maybe you were raised in an environment where even when you were you and you gave it your best, it was never quite enough. Maybe you were raised around the church, immersed in the church, or maybe you had nothing to do with the church. No matter the environments we come from, No matter how dark or difficult or complicated or messy, the storyline of this book proclaims loud and clearly that the brokenness of your past does not derail God's plans for your future. Enter the character of Joseph for us today. Because he doesn't come in a household of choir boys like we think. Well, all the stories in this book, you know, there's amazing stories in here. And for the most part, they're stories of brokenness and mess and difficult and complicated. And Joseph's one of those. And so today we're going to get a little backdrop on his upbringing and uh, give a little perspective on some things for our life today. So Genesis 37, here's how his story is introduced. Verse 1. Jacob, that's Joseph's father, lived in the land where his father had stayed, the land of Canaan. So that's modern-day Israel, so a lot of things going on in Israel, West Bank, Jordan, Gaza Strip, that whole territory of land today. In the Bible, the term land of Canaan is what that geographical area is. And then verse 2, 
This is the account of Jacob. So I put in your notes a family tree. So here's what the kind of the lineage of where Joseph comes into the scene. You see that Abraham, the father of Israel, I want you to think of this as kind of the beginning of the nation of Israel. So you've got Abraham who marries Sarah and they wait a long time, much longer than they envisioned to have a child, Isaac. So it's the, the country of Israel's Abraham, Sarah, and Isaac. And then Isaac, many would have thought Isaac would have met someone and got married and had kids fairly quickly because the whole nation's gonna flow through him. Isaac is 40 and he's single. So those of you who are single longer than you ever envisioned you would be and struggling with that, I commend to you the life of Isaac because Isaac would be a good case study. In Genesis 24, he's 40 years old before he meets his bride, Rebecca. And Isaac and Rebecca have two sons, but it was 20 years before. So he's 40 when he gets married. He's 60 when he has the twin boys, Jacob and Esau. And here's how that's introduced to us in Genesis 25, verse 24 and following. When the time came for her, Rebekah, to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. The first to come out was red, and his whole body was like a hairy garment, so they named him Esau. After this, his brother came out with his hand grasping Esau's heel, so he was named Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when Rebekah gave birth to him. And so you've got uh, Isaac and Rebekah giving birth to twin boys. One of the boys, Esau, was kind of like a daddy's boy. He was a hunter type, an outdoors type, a shop at Cabela's type guy. And then you've got the Jacob, who's like the mama's boy, the stay at home, the clean cut, the shop at Ikea type boy. Okay, so you've got Esau and you've got Jacob and they're growing up and Jacob's name literally means kind of grabber or deceiver. He's holding on to Esau's heels. They jockey for pole position in the womb and Esau beats him out of the womb first. And so he's got all the firstborn rights and the firstborn privileges. And basically you've got, you know, Rebecca no doubt saying to Isaac, probably pretty on in their marriage, saying, hey, unless you want your kids to visit you in a nursing home, we need to get busy and get about this. And the time frame was another 20-year gap. He's 60 years old when he becomes a dad. So he had another principle for us to talk about another day, right, where we repeatedly see in God's story is God's timetable is a lot different than ours. And generally speaking, his is longer. We receive it as much, uh, much slower than our preferences would be. And this would be another example of that. So Jacob and Esau are on the, on the scene. Jacob is Joseph's father. And Jacob is going to live up to his name, Deceiver. So those of you who maybe sat down and say, I'm going to name my child a good biblical name, like Jacob. Now, there's some good aspects of Jacob's life. Don't miss it. But there's probably, uh, there's some parts here of Jacob's life where, ah, a little cringe factor. There's all kinds of those, by the way. When you pick a good biblical name, apart from Jesus, you're going to run into some shady parts of people's character. So just a heads up on that front. And so Jacob here, he's got some shady parts of his life, and one of those is he's going to deceive his brother out of the firstborn rights, and he's going to deceive his father from the firstborn blessing. He's really good at deception, which is what his name actually means. So he swaps the birthright out from Esau. He swaps the blessing out from under Esau. And remember, Esau's the shop at Cabela's outdoorsman, really good with a bow and arrow, strong and big guy. And so here's 
what the scripture says Esau as he grew up and grasped this. Genesis 27, 41. Esau held a grudge against Jacob. Because of the blessing his father had given him, he said to himself, the days of mourning for my father are near, then I will kill my brother Jacob. Mom steps in now, because remember, Jacob's mama's boy. Mom steps in and gives some great parental wisdom here. Your brother Esau wants to kill you. What do you think mom says? Run! Real practical. Basically, mom steps in and says, hey, your brother's really good with a bow and arrow. He's a lot bigger and stronger than you. If and when he catches you, it's over for you. Run. So she offers her brother Laban. So Jacob's uncle Laban is where he heads off to. Several hundred miles away from where Esau's at, he goes over. Jacob starts working on Laban's farm and kind of starts starting his life over there, thinking at least I can get away from my brother who wants to kill me. And he meets Laban's daughter, Rachel, fairly quickly. He becomes attracted to Rachel. He goes to his uncle, says, hey, would it be possible at some point for me to receive Rachel's hand in marriage? To which Laban said, in exchange for seven years of labor from you, Another waiting time frame longer than he prefers. So seven years later, you can receive her as long as you work consistently for me. And listen to this verse, Genesis 29, 20. So Jacob served seven years to get Rachel, but they seemed like only a few days to him because of his love for her. And all the ladies say, aww. And all the guys right now are going note to self, pull out the phone, put a little reminder in your phone, right? Valentine's Day card, anniversary card, Genesis 29, 20. That's pretty solid, guys, right there. Tuck that one away. So you know how practical God's word is. Look at this, right? You need a way to affirm your spouse. Look at this. He served seven years, but it was just a few days to him because the depth of his love for Rachel and So he gets to the end of the seventh year. They plan the wedding. They have the big celebration. He's so looking forward to the wedding night. The party goes on quite long. Jacob, no doubt, had a little too much to drink. It comes time for the wedding night festivities. And instead of Rachel being escorted into his bedroom, the deceiver is now deceived because Laban sends his firstborn daughter, Leah, into Jacob's bedroom for the wedding night. And Jacob doesn't know this until the next morning. Now, there's a lot of points of application here we could get into. We could have all kinds of discussions about this particular night, but that's for another day. The point being here is I want you to think about now, we're we're looking at the context in which Joseph's raised. So here's Jacob, his father, who thought he was marrying Rachel, who now wakes up and realizes in their culture he's now married to Leah, But he'd still like to be married to Rachel, so he goes to Laban, quite upset, as you might imagine, and Laban says, well, in exchange for seven more years, you can have Rachel too, but I won't make you wait seven years. You can marry her now and then just work it off. So here's Jacob. So he's got two wives now, and then they throw in a couple maidservants, Bilhah and Zilpah, kind of a cultural thing there, were some nannies to help the house, except for the nannies become sexually involved with Jacob. So you end up here with four different moms for 12 different sons. That's Jacob. And the 12 sons, back up to the family tree, Ted, the 12 sons of Jacob become the 12 tribes of Israel. The brokenness of your past will not derail God's plan for your future. 
I commend to you the family tree of Jacob. This is not a group of choir boys. And Joseph, as you see his name up there, is born and raised by that father in that household with those family dynamics. So what I'd like to look at today are kind of three principles from this storyline as Joseph is introduced to us that function as a bridge into our everyday life with Jesus. Back to Genesis 37 now, back to verse 2. This is the account of Jacob. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah. Those are the maidservants. Yes, he had some children with his father's wives, and he brought their father a bad report about them. Shocker, right? There's that, what does that tell you about the dynamics within all the kids there? There's not a lot of a camaraderie. There's not a lot of supporting each other. It's a lot of infighting and jealousy and anger and bitterness, something I'm sure we don't know anything about today with all of our extended families. But this extended family dynamic is, is a lot of broken mess here. And now Israel, now here, here's the challenging thing about the Old Testament storyline. Israel is the name of a person, Jacob, and it's the name of a geographic area, I would like to say, God, could you help us out a little bit here with this? But he's chosen. So when you read in the storyline here, you have to pay attention. Is the noun Israel referring to a place or is it referring to a person? When it's referring to a person, Jacob and Israel are interchangeable. Okay, so, when it, so here it's saying Israel, that's Jacob, loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age. And he made a richly ornamented robe for him. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they underline this in your Bibles, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. So here's the coat that they believe the family put together for Joseph. You could see how he could be quite discreet in his days when he was wearing that, right? It'd be hard to find Joseph and pick him out. And the coat was given, notice the length of the coat would reinforce, he's not going to do a lot of physical labor in this gear here, meaning he's going to kind of do daddy's pet projects, be more of the management crew, and then all the rest of the brothers are going to do the sweat labor stuff, because this guy is going to wear this nicely ornamented robe, clearly the favored one. And do you see what festered within the family dynamic, a lot of entitlement, that Joseph will struggle with, but a lot of anger and jealousy and resentment and bitterness from the end, from within, to the point where they couldn't even speak a kind word to each other, and they use a strong word in the Bible. So they, they hated him. There was a level of hatred in the siblings themselves. This is the brokenness in which Joseph is raised. This is the environment. Do you see the kind of young men that they have become? under Jacob's leadership in this household. Do you see this picture? This is where he's now stepping into God's story. This is the Joseph of which we'll be tracking. Let's not lose sight now, because eventually we're gonna get where did God take him, the end of the story. Let's not lose sight now of where it started. And today I want us to look at three principles from this 
to help us with some perspective on the journey out of our own brokenness because every single blue chair here has a story and every story has some layer of brokenness even though though even some of you who were raised in choir boy type environments you know choir boy environments you know families that were immersed in the church do you know there's plenty of brokenness in those too it just might be covered up under perhaps a stack of Bibles and some lapel pins with crosses and other things and fish bumper stickers and all that. But believe you me, there's plenty of brokenness. Why? Because we're all human and we all inherited the same propensity of sin and we all can drift the same direction. Every single one of us has a story and every single one of us has plenty of brokenness to bring into this story. And what God wants us to see today is absolutely positively no aspect of your brokenness is gonna derail my plan and purpose for you. So principle number one from this storyline is that the brokenness of your past does shape you. I think there's a, there's a reality check for all of us here, and I put a diagram in your notes to help us kind of delve into this a bit. The essence of being a person is encapsulated in these concentric circles. To be a person is to be someone with a will, a mind, a body, and a soul. That as a person, you have a will, you have a capacity to choose, to say yes or no, to choose good, good or evil. That's your will. And then you have a mind, which is where you house your thoughts and your feelings. Uh, we, with our minds, this is how we're conscious of things. And what we set our minds to reveals a lot about our character, like what our thoughts are focused upon. What are we choosing to engage our will to focus ourselves upon? And then our body is our physical presence in this world. So our body is how we relate to the world around us. And you notice how we kind of outsource things to our body. Because in the early stages with your body, you have to train it pretty much to do everything, especially when they're younger, right? So those of you raising young ones, it's an adventure when they start figuring out how to walk and they come up to that stairwell and you're like running over to rescue them because they have no idea their body isn't trained to navigate that stairwell. How, why? because that's part of the process of growing up. But right now as an adult, when you go down or up a flight of stairs, do you know your body's just doing what you've trained it for years to do? You're not giving a lot of thought with your will and your mind with your body to do flight of stairs, drive a car, tie a shoe. You outsource things to your body. It just does what it's trained to do. And then your soul encapsulate all of this. So follow me here. Your soul is what brings you into an integrated and whole person. Your, your soul is what's like the operating system of your life. It integrates your will, your intentions, with your mind, your thoughts, and your feelings, with your body, which is like your body language, your face, and your actions. It integrates all of that into a singular life. And I want you to think with me now about the kind of soul that Joseph had become by the time Genesis 37 is here. I want you to think about what's going on with this young man's soul at 17. I want you to think about your own journey with your soul. And the picture we get here is that there's some layer in which our souls are greatly affected, especially in the early stages of our life, by the kind of environment in which we're raised. Do you know our family dynamics whether they were good, bad, or everything in between, have a lot to do with how our souls are shaped in those formative years, which then affects your body and your mind and your will. This is why some people's bodies are trained to behave a certain way. Do you see that's an outflow of some of the environment for which they're shaped and formed in? 
good or bad. And we've got to come to grips with this. This is why denial or escape is a terrible way to deal with brokenness. It does no good to put your head in the sand and to deny some of the broken elements of your past and kind of try to ignore and just forget about them. How's that working for you? It's not going to work because there's aspects of your soul that have been broken down by the environment and the experiences and the relationships and the things you were a part of. Again, good, bad, or everything in between. And what I want us to see here is that the journey from where we are today to where God wants us to be, it starts right where we are. We have to be honest about current reality. And for some, that's very, very difficult to do, but it's very, very important and necessary. You can't move to this next stage of where God wants you to be until you come to grips with where you are right now and what's going on in the inmost places of the soul and what's been affected and what needs reformed and reshaped and helped and healed. And this is where a lot of people can help. Body of Christ helps. Word of God helps. Holy Spirit helps. Counselors help. Doctors help. There's all kinds of places to get help, but you realize there's a common denominator from those who genuinely go and get help are those who first grasp that they need it. I found in trying to work with people to help them out of their brokenness, there is a common theme from those who make progress and those that don't. Those who make progress understand that there's progress to be made and they want to move forward. They want to take a step out of some of this and those that don't, some people just maybe like cycling around in patterns of brokenness. Why Jesus walked up to the man by the pool of Bethesda, John chapter five, 38 years, he's laying there and he says, do you want to get well? That's a loaded question. My experience is a whole lot of people like laying by the pool of Bethesda with no interest in getting in and getting healed, but perhaps like all the attention and the drama and the brokenness and everybody kind of rallying around and empathizing around their next cycle of crisis and the 10 text messages and all the phone calls, they just go from one cycle of drama and brokenness to the next, but not interested in getting into the pool of Bethesda and actually becoming healed. Do you want to get well? So for Joseph, what he's going to have to come to grips with, which we'll track with him in the weeks ahead, is he's got to come to grips with the kind of young man he's become because of the environment that he was raised in that shaped him. He does not have a very good view of a man-woman relationship. He doesn't have a very good view of integrity in that. He doesn't have a very good view of yeses and nos. He doesn't have a good view of favoritism. All of these things are affecting the kind of 17-year-old that's on the scene. But hear this loud and clear, that's not gonna exempt him from God using him. It's just a part of right. God's gonna approach him and take him right where he is and move him along. Same with us. So point number one today is let's all just agree Every single one of us has a story. Plenty of us has plenty of brokenness. And let's come to grips with the way the brokenness has affected, affected us. And let's work through what needs to be worked through and get the kind of help we need to get. And let's be honest about the journey starting right where we are to go to the next stage. And then point number two of today is let's hold on to this, that Jesus accepts us just as we are but he loves us enough not to leave us just as we are. Aren't you grateful for that? You don't have to like clean your act up. You don't have to figure all this stuff up. You don't have to get yourself 
cleaned up, fixed up, shaped up to come to Jesus. That's a misunderstanding of the Christian life. You come to Jesus just as you are, with all of our brokenness, all of our history, all of our mess, all of our story. We bring ourselves honestly and transparently to Jesus just as we are. And then you know what he does? I found no one else better to care for our souls than Jesus of Nazareth. He is amazing at soul care. Have you figured out that there's no one else who can care for your souls like Jesus? Do you know that, have you tried to like take care of your own soul? Like you try to fix your own soul? How's that working out? We're not good at that. Now we have a part of it because it's our soul, but we can't fix our soul. We can't restore our soul. Psalm 23, when the, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He what? He restores my soul. Only the good shepherd can do that. You can't restore your soul. You can't reform your soul. You can't reshape your soul. You can't fix your soul. Jesus can. And here's the glorious truth of the gospel of Jesus is you just bring him your soul just as it is. How messed up, broken, complicated, messy, difficult it is. Just bring it to him. And this is why the last series was so important. And the diagram I put in your notes, there's three primary areas in Jesus's plan for soul care. What does he do with our soul? First, it's the role of the Holy Spirit. Our whole last series was built around what? It's life beyond us that comes in and breathes life into our soul. Our soul can come to life. Our soul can be reformed and reshaped. How? By the power and presence of the Holy Spirit. So when the Spirit comes in, he begins to do some things in the soul that no physician can do, no medication can do, no friend can do, no family member can do, no sermon can do. Only Jesus can do this by the Holy Spirit. And so you lean in to the top of that triangle and say, it's the spirit of the living God that comes in and begins to fix and reorder and reshape and heal the soul in combination with your everyday life. You know, God uses our circumstances that we find ourselves in today. Whatever's current rhythms of your life, some of you said goodbye to someone that you loved recently. Some of you enduring some health challenges you never imagined. A work situation, family drama, kids stuff, all this stuff. Do you know the location of our walk with God is our actual real life? Like, what's going on? Versus kind of envisioning that if I could just get my life to be something else, that that's where I'd really kind of get going with God. That's a total misunderstanding. The way he works with our soul is he takes us right where we are. Exactly the circumstances we find ourselves in right now. You don't have to graduate to some other kind of circumstance. You just come right where you are, as you are, in what you're in, your everyday life. And then the third element is you begin to engage your will to make some choices with your mind to set your mind on some things and engage your body that will affect your soul. That's called spiritual practices. And you remember that series we did in February where we practiced some things during the week together? And do you know what happened to some of us through that? Do you know that our souls were affected by some of those things? How? Because in combination of in the hands of the spirit and the location of our everyday life circumstances, we practice things like solitude and silence and setting our mind on things above and confession and immersion in scripture. And what's the cumulative effect of 
arranging your life around some of those practices? Do you realize that Holy Spirit, everyday life and practices, do you see that? All those things work together to begin to heal and shape and cleanse and renew the soul. Restoreth my soul. And this is the journey Joseph's going to go on. At 17 years old, he's introduced in the story, but his soul has already begun to be formed and shaped. And there's some things that need to be reworked in them. And that's where we're going to see God working with him. Joseph just comes as he is. God drafts him to his story just as he is with all that brokenness and family upbringing and drama and mess and brings him right into the story. And we'll see, he's gonna reform and reshape and rebuild him. Takes him just as he is, but loves him enough not to leave him that way. Same for all of us. God loves you just as you are and loves you enough not to leave you just as you are. And hallelujah, right? We all say hallelujah, that he loves us enough to say, hey, Simpson, Let's grow in this area. Let's die to some things here. Let's see some new resurrection life here. Let's go. I love you enough not to leave you alone with this. I'm not gonna let you cycle around in all this brokenness and mess. Let's go. Let's go. He loves us enough. He's patient enough. He's persistent enough. You notice how persistent he is? He just keeps coming for us, keeps working with us, never giving up on us. So first part of Joseph's upbringing tells us, let's be honest, our brokenness does affect and shape who we are. We gotta be honest about it. And then secondly, let's understand that we come to Christ just as we are. You don't have to clean it up, fix it up. You come to him, and that's the starting point where he begins then to work with you and move you from the way you are to who he wants you to be, which is central to drafting you into his story. And then the third element of this morning is to recognize that your story and my story is what God will use to help others. Gang, I don't understand. I don't understand why God chooses to allow some people to grow up in more Joseph-like family environments than others. I don't, I don't understand it. I don't know why. I don't know why some of you have some kind of cascading layers of brokenness where it seems like the moment you take one step forward, you just go down another pile of all kinds of brokenness and sin and mess primarily at the hands of others around you, and it just seems to go one and to the next and to the next, and you've got decades worth of all kinds of, ah, I don't understand all those things. I don't know why the portion and cup for some seems to be more complicated and more difficult. Why the family tree for some of you has so many branches going so many different directions. The whole concept of step, 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 step just has lost its language. I mean, I don't know why in all this, but here's what I do know. That your story and my story, your pain and my pain is like an arrow pointing to how God is going to cause your life to line up with his purposes in this world. I want you to see how our greatest places of pain become also kind of the tipping point for our engagement with God's purposes in this world. Practically, what do I mean by that? I don't think it's an accident that a young lady who had to struggle through having an abortion at a young age, has a burden, as she comes to know Christ, has a burden to help teenage pregnant moms. That's, I don't think that's an accident that that lady's journey through what she journeyed through now, she wants to pour into some who find themselves in the very place she used to be in. Or a man who struggled with a long addiction to alcohol or drugs, then after God works and sets him free from some of those addictive patterns, 
then he's placed in an environment where he can turn back and give back to others, become a sponsor for others, help others out of some patterns of addiction. I don't think that's an accident. Or some who walk through abusive relationship with a spouse, ends in terrible divorce, and then that spouse eventually, as they heal up in Christ, has a passion and burden to turn around and help others who were right where they were a few years ago. And who better to help someone walk through some of those places of brokenness? And on and on we could go, could we not? Have you, do you see how your story and my story, how your brokenness and my brokenness, how your pain and my pain becomes like a point of an arrow that says, hey, I want you to look at your larger purposes in God's plan being in step with some of the deepest places of pain. And this is where redemption then gets the last word in the story. And I want you to see this as we walk with Joseph. I want you to see how God's gonna use all this mess in which he was raised in, and then he's gonna use it as an arrow point. Eventually, he's gonna land in a place of great leadership and influence for God's kingdom that there's no way Joseph could have ever envisioned the story going that way, but God saw it. And God's plan was this, because the brokenness of your past doesn't derail God's plan for your future. And as we'll see this with Joseph, we'll see it, we've seen it with Jacob. How about Jacob's story? I mean, you got, we could go on and on with the life of Jacob, a whole nother series with his environment that he was raised in and, and how he chose to lead or not lead. And then we look around at all of our own stories, right? Every single one of us has a story and that story has a level of brokenness and that brokenness has some stuff we have to come to grips with but we just come as we are and God doesn't leave us that way. And then we look at how that becomes an arrowhead pointing to the way God lines us up with his bigger purposes in this world. I found a prayer by Ted Loader. I don't think I put it in your notes because I ran out of space, but it's up here on the screen. I thought this summarized today well. Ted writes, oh God, it would be easier for me to pray if I were clear and of a single mind and pure heart, if I could be done hiding from myself and from you, even in my prayers, but I am who I am, mixture of motives and excuses, blur of memories, quiver of hopes, not of fear, tangle of confusion and restless with love, for love, come, Find me, Lord. Be with me exactly as I am. Help me find me, Lord. Help me accept what I am so I can begin to be yours.